Welcome to our redo episodes of Saltier Politics. This week, we're looking back at our interview with Ellie Honig, CNN legal analyst and formal federal and state prosecutor. So Julie and I wanted to bring this one back because we're in the midst, as you all know, of all this impeachment and legal drama. So why not talk about some infamous mobsters like Whitey Bulger and how he was apprehended? Also, Ellie and Julie get into the big Springsteen versus Bon Jovi debate, which never really has an expiration date. We hope you enjoy and look forward to getting back to you with some new material soon. Uh, And here's Ellie. Before we get to what I think is so fascinating, which is your prosecution of the guy that killed Whitey Bulger, um, I just want to say we on this podcast always drink. And for some reason, every guest we've had um, is the bane of my existence because they like either cheap beer like Steve Kornacki or they all like brown alcohol. Um, And you are making us drink Jack and Ginger, which I don't think I... How did that become your drink? Yeah, how did that become your drink? I'm a terrible drinker in that I barely do it. And when I I do drink, I'm not that good at it. But it's simple. And uh, when my friends and I play cards, it's just what guys do. You just, I don't know, someone has a bottle of Jack, you grab a... Thing of ginger ale from from the bodega. I feel like it. Jack's a guy drink. That's true. I don't know many women who drink Jack. That's I like the Jack and honey. Uh, oh yeah, that's horrible. I don't know what that I, is. That that's I disgusting. Have. That's I mean, disgusting. It's, like, it's syrup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's repulsive. All right. But I just want to say it is night. It is dark out. It is definitely dark out. Okay. But I still stand by the fact that Jack and ginger is. Although I'm downing it because I just spent two hours in traffic and we're about <laughs> to talk Whitey Bulger, my favorite topic. Um, I still, mm, I don't know, one day somebody's going to show up with vodka or some, something, <laughs> something near and dear to my Russian heart. Um, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the fact that um, you prosecuted the guy that allegedly murdered Whitey Bulger. When I was in Boston, Billy Bulger, Whitey Bulger's brother, was sort of the king of Boston politics. He was the Senate president, um, or the Senate majority leader, as they call it in Massachusetts, I think. And he had kind of a really big political fall because of the fact that people thought he protected his brother Whitey, who um, was this legend um, in Southie, which is the southern end of Boston. And I guess in, in addition to that, you said um, uh, you were talking about people cooperating with the feds before, a, a big cooperator, right, with with law enforcement, which protected yeah. him for many years, ironically He was an informant, enough. yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Tell us about the guy that killed him, because I thought you had such an interesting point about why, but you know this guy because he spent a long time prosecuting. I tried him uh, yeah. for, for five murders, attempted murders, right. and, con- and conspiracies. So Photius Gius, Freddie Gius, um, was a, a hitman for the Genovese family. He was not made, right? He's not Italian. He's, uh, you have he, to be Italian to be made? Yes, you do. You can't even be like the consigliere? You can't no, be like it's not no, like a Godfather like, thing? Right, yeah. uh, Tom Hagen. Tom Hagen? No, 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 no. All right. Um, but the Giuses were, I think, Greek, right. um, but they were really, really tough guys. With the, the morning that it came out that Freddie Gius had, had allegedly killed Whitey Bulger, my phone blew up from friends from Southern District saying, wasn't this your guy? And I, I thought, my first thought was, oh my God, I can't believe my guy killed Whitey Bulger. My second thought was, of course it was Freddie Gius. Right. Why? Um, because he was, he was really bloodthirsty. Um, so he was... We ended up prosecuting a whole bunch of guys from the Genovese family. We tried three defendants together. It was Artie Nigro, who was the boss of the Genovese family, and then Freddie and his brother, Ty. Actually, Ty was a little even more dangerous than Freddie. But that was the trial. And 
The case involved, the main case we charged, they had gunned down a, a captain, a high-ranking person, um, in Springfield, Massachusetts, sort of broad daylight. The GS boys had found some crazy guy to shoot him, shot him a bunch of times, and killed him. When we did the case, someone else cooperated and said, you know, we also killed someone else and buried him in the woods. And what? the FBI then took this cooperator out of jail for the day, and, and the cooperator showed him, uh, walked him into the woods in a town called Agawam, Massachusetts. And the cooperator said, somewhere around here, FBI dug, and there he was, Gary Westerman. He'd been missing for seven years. They killed him. They bashed him over the head with a shovel. They dumped him in the grave, and seven years later, we dug him up. Um, and so we tried Artie Nigro. Wait, and the best part is yep. I read that you still found, or the feds found him still wearing his ski mask. That he yeah. Was, that's crazy. He had his Nike, his Nikes intact and his ski mask. The way they lured him into the woods is they told, he was a bad guy too. And they said, we're going to rob this drug dealer. And in order to get into his house, we got to cut through the woods here. They get into the woods, they turn on him. They actually, a, a little detail that makes these cases interesting. Uh, the Giuses started shooting at him and they said, the bullets bounced off his head. He wasn't dying. And then they, that's why they bashed him over the head with the shovel to finish him off. And sure enough, when we went out in the woods, there were shell casings from the exact right type of gun right there. Seven years later, uh, the, the forensics showed that he'd been bashed over the head, that he'd been shot but not penetrated through the skull. So it, it lined up. Per I got to stand in front of the jury in closing argument and say, you know, there's this expression, does he know where the bodies are buried? And in normal life, that means, does he know what he's talking about? Does he really have the goods? In this case, the cooperator literally knew where the body was buried. So that was a, a very fun case to try. We convicted all three defendants on both of those murders. There was another attempted murder where they shot someone in the Bronx nine times and he lived uh, and wow. testified for us, but he didn't know who did it. He just said, two tall white guys. That's the genius boys. Uh, and they all got life sentences. And I thought that would be the last I'd ever hear of Freddie Gius uh, until he killed Whitey Bulger. Now you're right. I, I am 99.9% .9 sure Freddie Gius had never met Whitey Bulger, had anything to do with him until that day. Freddie Gius was operating in Springfield, but he was really a New York extension of the Genovese family. Bulger was a, was a Boston mobster. Um, totally different ages, no reason to think they would have ever come in contact. But look, immediately I said, I know, what I know why Freddie did this. Number one, Freddie just, just loves the killing. They killed almost for sport. They killed for reputation. We showed the evidence in the case was when they killed Westerman, the guy they buried in the woods, it was because they felt like they weren't getting enough respect. And so we said, we gotta, come on, we gotta, we gotta kill somebody. He was kind of their friend. Um, but they wanted to raise their, their rep. The second thing is Freddie hates cooperators. Um, I mean, we got him with cooperators. His former close friends turned and testified for us. And Bulger, like you said, was an informant. So I think he was sending a message. Do you think it, there's a possibility that this was coming down from on high? Or you think he just did it? I don't, did it? I, I put, I'll put it this way. The only consequences to Freddie really are they could move him to a slightly higher uh, security classification and he could get charged again, but he's already got a life sentence. He's not getting put to death. The right. feds haven't put anyone to death since 2003. And, and the way, knowing Freddie, he would gladly take a slightly different security classification to be a prison legend. Did, did you ever worry about your safety doing this, these trials? No, because it, it wasn't good for business for them to come after me. Look, if the rule was if you kill the prosecutor, the case gets dismissed, I'd be dead a hundred times over. But if they ever tried something on me, the case doesn't go away. They just plug in the next Southern District guy. And by the way, all of federal law enforcement will come down on your head. So no one ever tried anything. I wasn't scared. Um, I always kept it business. It was never personal. There were some prosecutors like to growl at people or, you know, I'm going to tear you apart. That wasn't, that wasn't my style. So. And did you ever think, was there ever any fear that this was going to potentially come down the pike? I mean, you're not prosecuting yeah. low-level drug dealers, right? You're prosecuting... Uh, later major, on, major mobsters and yeah. Other later matters. on, the, 
No, not really. Not really. Um, although I would put Freddie G, if you said, who do you not want to get locked in a room with for five minutes right. from the guys you prosecuted, Freddie and Ty Gius would be in that top five. And had he had a record before you got him, or was he... Oh, yeah, he'd been convicted. Not, not, no murders. Right. He'd been in and out. He, he had a troubled background, but um, nothing that ever kept him in for a long stretch until we got him. So everybody <laughs> I know is completely fascinated by Whitey Bulger, and he's, again, um, I think it's the Jack Nicholson myth. I think he's just become such a mythical figure, right. and I think this Freddie Gius now for the rest of his life is going to be linked to that. It's almost like a Jack Ruby situation. Or Yeah, I almost cringed yeah. when I saw it, and I wrote a piece about it for CNN, yeah. but I almost thought, ugh, like, I, I know Freddie's sitting in jail loving his clippings right now and, and, and loving the attention he's getting. All right. Here's a weird fact about you, which we also always ask, um, which speaking of as a federal prosecutor, this sounds super, super sketchy, but you changed your name twice, which again, makes me wonder what you're hiding, what you're running from. <laughs> I, I legally changed my name twice. Okay. My, my marriage certificate, they made me put an AKA on there, which really made me feel like a criminal <laughs> defendant. Does your wife know this? That's kind of sketchy. Does. She does. Okay. She was a little taken aback. Um, oh, you didn't tell her until <laughs> no, she knew. <laughs> but but when we were sitting, honey, I've got something to tell you. I've been on the run for thirty years. <laughs> well, we were sitting there, and they said, what, "Have you ever been known by other names?" I right. said, "Yeah," and they said, "Well, you, you have to have an AKA on there." <laughs> so, Whoops. Uh, do you want the the quick version of it? I kind of want the interesting version of it. So my birth name was Eliezer okay. after my grandfather. Right. A little bit of a mouthful to call a little right. kid. So my parents called me Ellie. Right. Constantly confused for a girl. Right. Okay. Put in the girls' team, the girls' bunk at camp. I got a girls' soccer trophy, like with breasts mm -hmm. and stuff. <laughs> and so when I signed up to go to overnight camp, my dad, who's a lawyer, said, do you want to change it to, to a definite guy's name just for signing up? Right. And of course, at age 10, yes. So we legally changed it to Elliot, which no one really ever called me. Okay. And then, except at camp. Uh, and then years later, when I became a lawyer, I asked my mom, I said, can you go dig up that file? It's from when I was 10. And so she found it and it was like moldy. She FedExed it to me. And I went to the DC court where I was living at the time and changed it back to Eliezer. Um, so I went from Eliezer to Elliot back uh, to Eliezer. So oh, you're to, still Eliezer. Yeah, I'm back okay. to the original. What was the moment you decided to go back to the original? Uh, I don't know exactly. I think when I became a lawyer, I thought, oh, I can do this myself now. Okay. And by the way, when I got the old file from when we changed it to Elliot, my dad had made me write an affidavit to the court saying, basically, when you're I was 10? 10. I was 10. <laughs> saying, um, I want to change my name because I don't want to get confused for a girl and I'm not a fugitive from the law or trying to evade civil process or something. That's like. My hilarious. dad's careful. That is awesome. And that is so many years of therapy. They're going to have to work that out. And that's hilarious. <laughs> it made me stronger. Yeah, of course. Of course. How did you end up doing organized crime? Is that something you <laughs> fell into or is that an interest of yours? I, I, or I'm laughing because we once did a panel at the Southern District where all the bureau chiefs spoke to the new new. Uh, prosecutors about why they went into their senior unit and everyone had this inspiring stories or interesting stories I wanted to go into securities because I've always been interested in banking and finance I just basically said I thought it was cool yeah uh, I like the movies and stuff um, I, you know I knew a lot of the people who were in there but yeah it, it seemed like a thrill right to, to go after real-life mobsters people say was it like Goodfellas is it like Sopranos a lot of times it's better um, and so I love the stories I love the human drama of it uh, I love getting to sit down with someone who's who, who used to be in the mob, who maybe has committed murders and done horrible things, and ask them about their life. How did you get into this? Why did you do it? How do you feel about it now? So I, I think there's a, a sort of a human drama that's unique to organized crime and a storytelling piece of it that what, really attracted me. What's the most realistic mob movie? Is it oh, Goodfellas? Good is it Sopranos? Is it, I mean, Sopranos is not a movie, but what's the most realistic fictional depiction of the mob? Sopranos is really realistic because really? I think what the Sopranos shows is, is how stressful and frustrating 
it is for the guys who were involved in it, right? We have this glamorized view of the mob as it's all back rooms and cigar smoking and, and planning hits. But for real, I think if you watch The Sopranos, and I just rewatched a couple episodes recently, you see how frustrated and stressed they all are, and they're all fighting over the small, same pieces of the pie and the same, uh, the same rackets. Uh, and, I, and that's really true when you see um, how mobsters really operate. It's a grind. It really is a grind, almost like, like a lot of other professions. Yeah, as a, as a successful mobster, the successful organization, almost like a successful large enterprise yeah. of any kind. Yeah, I look at a lot of these guys, and I think that guy would have been successful if he was in, uh, on Wall Street. You know, he just happened to grow up in Bensonhurst or something. Right. Um, so, and of course we have our, our Jersey piece of it. We had, we had a guy who makes me think of Tony Soprano and Angelo Prisco who became the center of a New Jersey controversy. Um, we ended up trying him for murder too and convicting him. But the thing that's so Jersey about him is we had his driver wired up and there was a day when the driver had to drive Angelo from Fairlawn to Atlantic city, which Jersey geography, that's long. That's a long drive. Yeah. And Prisco took the whole time to give him mob 101. He goes, here's the five families. We're the Genovese family. He goes, <laughs> you're he goes, like taking notes. This oh, is fantastic. It's I like mean, a primer. It, the best part, uh, Angelo goes, look, we're the Genovese family. We're the smartest one. We don't talk on tape. We don't shoot our oh mouth off. God. The reason the Gambinos got, got taken down was because John Gotti senior couldn't shut up and got caught on tape. And, That's I mean, awesome. As you're hearing this, what is the reaction in the room as you guys are listening? Well, we're not hearing it live, yeah. but, but the next day, uh, laughter, high five, <laughs> and how do you know when you're listening in? I've always yeah. wondered, the Sopranos kind of alluded to this in an episode, but as you're listening in um, on a call mm-hmm. and, and, or in a conversation, it has to only be relevant and germane to what you're looking into, right? If somebody's wife comes in or, or how does that, how do you know when to turn off the mic? Right. So, so that applies to if you're on a phone wire, a right. wiretap. Right. Um, the agents get sort of trained on that. It's called minimizing. Mm-hmm. You just have to use your judgment. If the wife comes in and you start talking about the kid's soccer game, you have to minimize, meaning you have to turn it off. And then you can listen back in 30 seconds later and see if they've changed topics. But if someone's wearing a wire for you, um, it's not physically a right. wire. I'm gesturing. It's not physically a wire anymore. It's much more sophisticated. But then you can get you can get everything. Um, you can you don't have to turn on and off because you have someone, the guy wearing the wire, who's consenting to it. So gosh, I've listened to like eight hour long wiretaps where they're just sitting there watching two football games in a row and it's so tedious. You have to be the one to listen to it as the prosecutor no, or you have you know, yeah, an agent or somebody listening Good to agents it. will tell you what's on it, but but sometimes they'll they'll write um, conversation about extortion. And you'll go, yeah, but it's a six hour tape. Yeah. So I um, had some good interns who did that too. What's a, I hear the Italian mob kind of has a code of honor for lack of a better word. I'm sure it's sure. probably a really inappropriate word to use, but um, whereas like the Russian mob or the Kuzar or somebody, those guys are yeah. much more brutal. Like uh, the Russian mob, I think would not hesitate to kill you, the prosecutor, or, or worse, yeah. to dismember your entire family and leave you alive to suffer so, the consequences. So they all have codes, but of course the, the Italian mafia, Cosa Nostra, they'll mm-hmm. tell you the rules are only the rules until they're not, right? right? Well, we're not supposed to deal in drugs, but a lot of them do, right? right? Um, but yes, the, a lot of the newer and emerging organized crime groups are much more violent, much tougher. Um, and I'll give you an example. The Genovese family, in another case I did, wanted to do home invasions on people who kept cash in the house, drug dealers, or, or including um, the, the TV show Orange County Choppers. Remember that, where they, right. they fix up motorcycles? Yep. So, so there was a rumor on the streets that they were keeping, and this is public, I'm not, that they were keeping cash from merchandise sales in their house. So cash businesses. But what the Genovese family did was they, they basically subcontracted those robberies to Albanian gangsters. You know, the Albanian gangsters, a couple of them flipped, and they would say, yeah, because we're, we're tougher and we're, we're more willing to go in and, and uh, zip tie someone and beat them up. 
But these Albanian gangsters are scary. I had a couple that, that cooperated with me, and they used to laugh at the Italians. Like, oh, these Italians, they got, they got no heart. I remember one, one of them said to me, they, these Italians got no heart. We'll, we'll, I'll fight 10 of them at once. <laughs> so uh, the new groups are a little tougher and a little scarier. Yeah, Yeah, it's kind of, how did they emerge? I mean, there's a, there's a vacuum because the Italian mob in New York at least kind of yeah. got broken up. I mean, the, the Italian mob in New York is not all that violent anymore. Right. There hasn't been an agreed upon... There hasn't been a murder that I think we in law enforcement agree was a mob hit for, for several years now. But the Albanians, they're fighting for turf and, and they're breaking into new businesses, new neighborhoods, Russians, Albanians. Um, there's Asian gangs here in Manhattan, Chinatown, um, and they tend to be a little, a little harder edged. Interesting. What's, what's the most bizarre front that you've seen for any of these gangs? Uh, front. Okay. So uh, good question. Um, Someone just reminded me of this this morning. There was a Gambino family gangster who made a fortune off of the fruit importation business. So he controlled the docks, including Newark and Brooklyn, and he took a piece, I guess it's not exactly a front, but he took a piece of every fruit shipment. And these are these huge barges that come in from right. South America. Um, so he made, he, he, you know, he started off as a, as a, I think, a Bensonhurst guy. But he ended up making a fortune off fruit importation. So it sounds not threatening, but you can make a fortune off it. Um, tell us your two truths and a lie. Ah. And you're going to try to, you said you're a horrible liar. So why don't we not I look really at you? I really am. You can look at me. I, okay. I wrote these down though, because okay. I, I need some cover here. Okay, go um, ahead. Two truths and a lie. So I've done themes here. It's a New Jersey theme. I got it. I'm already way ahead of this. I can probably figure it out already. And it's a musical theme. I've All got right. a cover too. What kind of music? You'll see. All right. Okay. Number Could one. I've gotten uh, I've gotten them all wrong, so I can only go up. <laughs> yeah, there. I think I think I'm pretty much I've, I've, I'm I'm in a good place. I think I've gotten most of them. <laughs> all right, you're confident. Go ahead. Number one, my first concert was in 1988 at the Atlantic City Steel Pier. It was the Beach Boys featuring special guest drummer John Stamos. Okay. Got it. Got it. Processed. Okay. Number two, in 1989, I went to a Springsteen concert at the Brendan Byrne Arena. I held up a sign saying, I know all the words to glory days. Clarence Clemens glanced at me. I thought they were going to do the thing where they pull me on stage. <laughs> like, Courtney, he, like Courtney Cox. Like Courtney Cox. I was ready to do my Courtney Cox right. thing, but they did not. Okay. And then number three was in 1995 when I was at Rutgers in New Brunswick. Um, I went to a Run DMC concert at the College Ave Gym, uh, but I only got in because I worked security. All right, I'm going to right away say that the Stamos thing has to be real because I'm thinking that Stamos became a big deal um, when he was on Full House, and you said this is 1980 or 89, right? 88? I think 87. 87, which I think Full House was already on, and I recall um, that he was playing with the Beach Boys at the time, so that stands to reason. I'm going to say the Run DMC thing is so preposterous that it has to be real. <laughs> And so the Clarence Clemens one, although it's good, has to be fake. Don't tell us yet. Emily. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I was born in 1990. Oh my god. So, so you never of, watch Full House. <laughs> well, I saw. I see the. I'm seeing the remake on Netflix. Uh, you are no longer 15, so that's not acceptable. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that later. Fuller House. Just, yeah. Just checking it out. Uh, I felt like the second one was super specific. So I'm gonna go with Run DMC. Oh, good. I was worried you'd both get it. Springsteen is false. I knew it. I knew it. Yes. <laughs> Got it. I'm my track. I feel good. I just wanted track, to trick one of my you. Tra you know, my track record stands. Mine does too. <laughs> That's right. I have lost all of them. <laughs> I think I only, I don't remember. I think I'm pretty much good. Um, how, was, how was John Stamos? 
John Samuels was great. I, I, Wait a second. This is 1987? Hell Something like that. Yeah, I was 12 or so. I All went, right, that's an acceptable I, age. I just remember I went with a friend of mine's parents took us. They had a house in Ocean City. And my friend who said, uh, Mom, Dad, just don't act embarrassing, right? And this, you know, the curtain goes up right. on the steel pier. And they both, both his parents just stood up and danced their faces <laughs> off for the next two hours. And John Stamos, people went crazy. John Stamos was John like Stamos super and his, hot back okay, then. Okay, back then. I don't mean hot. Back I mean hot like Back then, famous. John Stamos <laughs> continues to be super hot. I don't want to hear the back then. He had a mullet back then, so I'm not sure about the super yeah. hot part of him. But, um, and <laughs> what was up with working security for Run DMC? <laughs> was this during the Walk This Way period when they redid no, Walk This oh, Way? No, it was much later. I mean, okay. Walk This Way was like 85, 86. This is mm-hmm. when I was there, 94, 95. Oh, okay. So they played at the College Ave Gym. It right. was an unbelievable concert. They didn't even take breaks. They went song into song into song. Right. No breather. But, I w- but they had this thing where if you were involved in student government, which I was at the time, you could get in, but you had to, and I'm making air quotes, work security. So they gave you like a windbreaker and you had to stand there. You were supposed to stand with your back to the stage. So wait, you're, like, I'm going to stop someone from rushing the stage. <laughs> you, were, you, were ba- you were bouncing at a DNC. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I know I look, I know I look it. But, you, yeah, I mean. Um, but I ended up trying to stand off to the side of the stage as much as possible. Could um, run DMC not afford their own bouncers or their own security? I What's really don't know. I'm sure they had real security there. I, I would guess that part of the deal was Rucker said, we'll, we'll provide some student security as well. Well, but, and uh, you were toughened up by your name being Ellie at a young it. age. So to bring that full circle, you... Exactly right. You could take down anybody. <laughs> was this was there any part of the Springsteen story that's true? Did you actually ever go to a Springsteen concert? No, that was an amalgam of various things I've probably fantasized. Oh yeah, I've been to Springsteen oh. concerts. Yeah, but I've never held up a sign or been close right. to getting motioned out to see. You're you're a Jersey guy and I think the answer is self evident to any rational thinking person. Okay. But um Springsteen or Bon Jovi? Oh gosh, uh, Springsteen. I mean, I look, I like Bon Jovi, and, and we used to go. I used to go with my friends in DC, and we would say, "This is not an ironic trip. Just so don't come with us if you're planning to go ironically to Bon right. Jovi." Like, I'm slippery when wet. That is my, right. my core demo for that. Right. But there, there's no comparison. Springsteen has so much more, uh, more to it, and more depth. I got to tell you, I went to a Bon Jovi show. I want to say maybe about 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. At, um, at, at what was then, I think, Giants Stadium. I don't know what it's called yep. now. Um, and it was really bizarre because it was the early 2000s and it was like the land that time forgot and all the people at the mall from 1986 <laughs> that used to hang out with me at the Quaker Bridge Mall um, outside of Princeton, New Jersey. Apparently, I don't know where they got their perms that day, but it was like, yep. it was back during the slippery one wet it's like you got transformed back to New Jersey circa 1985, yeah. 1986. The problem with Bon Jovi, this may be blasphemy, but they... If you take away their top three or four or five songs, there's not a lot left. Springsteen, you could take away his top 20 songs. He'd still be amazing. I know. So that's... You know, I had this um, argument consistently with Phil Murphy, who's now the governor of New Jersey, who actually is very good friends with with Bon Jovi. And if you ask him, he'll say he prefers Bon Jovi, but he's originally from Massachusetts, so we'll cut him him a break. That says something about his New Jersey bona fides right there. (laughs) I'm going to not say anything about that. (laughs) 